friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us this week again on Conversations. We are so glad to have you back. We have a very good show for you today. With so many marriages in crisis and recent surveys pointing to how the sacrament is not even in the thought process of so many people, we welcome Peter and Deborah Herbeck onto the show to discuss lessons from the School of Love, Cultivating a Christ-Centered Marriage. But first, a dear friend, Louis Brown of the Christ Medicus Foundation, will be talking to us at the bottom of the hour, talking about the chemical abortion pill and his foundation signing on to an amicus brief against that drug in federal court. Welcome to the show, Louis. Thank you for having me. Louis, just last month, your organization joined the Susan B. Anthony list on an amicus brief in support of a preliminary injunction against the abortion pill mifeprestone. That sounds like a lot of complicated words. Can you explain to our listeners what's up uh, What's up here? What's your position on this? And what exactly is the case that you joined an amicus brief on? Sure. So, and, and again, a doctor, thank you for having me. A huge fan of your show. Oh, Pleasure. thank you, Louis. Sure. The Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine is a uh, wonderful new organization that is dedicated to upholding the fundamental principles of do no harm in healthcare. It's a relevant organization of numerous medical professionals and other folks involved in healthcare dedicated to saying we have a fundamental uh, obligation to do no harm uh, in healthcare and in our American healthcare system. It's a wonderful organization. They filed suit against the uh, FDA in their approval to their approval that the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine believes was unlawful due to FDA's unlawful approval uh, of the drug uh, mifepristone, a drug that can be used for chemical abortions. Uh, they filed suit to call out FDA and block the FDA's approval of that drug that uh, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine believes unlawful. And so they they filed that suit uh, in federal court in Texas. Uh, the Christ Medicus Foundation joined an amicus brief along with the Catholic Healthcare Leadership Alliance, Susan B. Anthony List, National Catholic Bioethics Center, Catholic Benefits Association, Catholic Bar Association. All of these groups coming together to say, we agree, a coalition of uh, pro-life organizations, many of whom are pro-life healthcare-related organizations, said, we agree with the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine. We agree that FDA... Uh, illegally, unlawfully uh, approved this drug as to uh, a use for chemical abortions, that it never should have been approved, that it's harming pregnant mothers, uh, and that pregnant mothers today in the United States don't fully, can't really truly uh, have informed consent because the FDA is not requiring the healthcare industry to tell the truth about these drugs. And so we are happy at the Christ Medicus Foundation with the Catholic Healthcare Leadership Alliance to join uh, this effort to support the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine's effort to block this chemical abortion drug that never should have been approved by FDA. Now, let me let, let's try to unfold that a little bit because it's a complicated issue, the abortion, the abor- the chemical abortion issue. It's been approved for a long time if prestone which That's right. it's, it's a drug that cuts off the blood supply to a developing baby. Uh, and it's used in the first few weeks of pregnancy, I think up on, up until 10 weeks uh, after since the LMP. And lately what the what the FDA has done is it, it, it has relaxed all the safeguards around the use of the drug. So it used to have significant safeguards. It had to be administered. Uh, according to the FDA, uh, by a, a healthcare, by a doctor, by a physician who is actually looking at the patient and seeing the patient and examining the patient uh, with their eyeballs and their hands, right? So not through telehealth, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that pa- that doctor had the responsibility to follow up with that patient, right? And and administ- not just administer the drug, but then be available for that patient when you know with when the when the patient needed the doctor because 
the horrible things that happen after you take that drug were happening and that patient was scared or even maybe in terrible danger of losing her life which also happens with this drug, as the FDA acknowledges. Um, so recently, the FDA has reduced and uh, all those safeguards around the drug and even gone so far as opening the door wide to telehealth administration, not by doctors, um, you know, people who could be totally unscrupulous, practitioners on the Internet, um, handing, sending prescriptions to, to girls, to little girls possibly, right? 11 or 12-year-old girls, right. women who are being trafficked, um, any 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 kind of nightmare situation, girls, women who are much more pregnant, much further along than they think they are, right? Uh, right. At which it, it becomes a very dangerous drug uh, for the mom. Women that may be pregnant with an ectopic pregnancy, meaning the baby's not in, inside the uterus, but the baby's growing outside the uterus. And if you take mifeprestone in an ectopic pregnancy, the, the woman's the woman's life could be just ended immediately in a terrible, painful death. Okay, so that's a lot of background. For, for you in this case, uh, that's coming up before the federal court in Texas, which part of all that are, are you objecting to? Is, is it the, re the relaxation in the guidelines and the safeguards or the drug itself in, in general? Right. What, what, you know, I think all of these organizations, but I, you know, I can only speak for the Christ Medicus Foundation here, but generally abortion is not health care. Um, we, we believe firmly that uh, life begins at conception. Abortion has no place in the uh, healthcare uh, industry. It has no place in uh, American civil society. Uh, nonetheless, uh, when we look at uh, what federal law requires for the health and safety of Americans, federal law requires that the FDA conduct tests necessary to show whether a drug is safe for use within uh, the broader public that is safe for use under certain conditions that under which that drug would be prescribed or recommended. And here we see that FDA failed to do that. They did not uphold federal law. They didn't conduct the proper type of testing and maintain the proper type of safety that federal law requires for the protection of the health and safety of women, for the protection of the health and safety of pregnant mothers. And so here, uh, because of the failures of the FDA, what we argue in this is that informed consent really isn't uh, possible. There are certain principles of informed consent uh, that are throughout American law that are some of the basis of the medical profession. And informed consent's not uh, not possible here really for a couple reasons, doctor. The first reason is that there were certain protections in the clinical trials that FDA used to approve this drug that have been dispensed with now that it's being prescribed across the country. And, and, and that's horrible. Furthermore, there's no reporting currently adverse events outside of death. For the use of this drug, uh, that's a, a huge problem. Uh, and I, you alluded to it earlier, over time, over the last, in particular, the last seven or so years, FDA has increasingly removed all of these protections for patients such that they're no longer required to necessarily see a, a medical professional uh, in person. That undermines the ability for a medical professional, and specifically a physician, to really ensure that there's no coercion uh, being used upon the, upon the woman, upon the pregnant mother uh, who's seeking to take this drug. And it's also the, the lack of requirement of a medical professional uh, visiting a pregnant mother in person also undermines uh, the ability of the medical professional to really diagnose. And so all of these things mean that we have a drug available to millions of pregnant mothers uh, that clearly on its own is just harmful. They're not being told the truth about the drug. It is not consistent with what federal law requires. It was illegally approved. Uh, and that is harming millions of women. They don't know what they are getting themselves into because the federal government and some of the healthcare industry isn't being honest about this drug. And that's a tragedy. You know, many states, uh, you well know, I'm sure, Lewis, many states agree with you and their, their state laws governing the use of, of these chemical abortion pills are very different from the ones that are now being pushed by the FDA. For instance, in my home state of Florida, where, where I'm located and where I work, and, and, I, and part of my work is I have patients who are, fe who are embryos and, and fetuses, because I'm, I'm a radiologist, and um, 
Here in Florida and in other states, we have laws that that are completely opposed to what the FDA is saying. And I, and I and I know uh, that we oppose it here in our state of Florida for the same reasons. Because not only does abortion obviously end the life of an innocent, vulnerable human being that, through no fault of his or her own, is has come along at an inconvenient time, uh, but it also these chemical abortions put women at grave risk and. And they are, they're very much, um, they're opportunities for unscrupulous people to make a very big and fast uh, buck, right? Um, right. And, and the FDA seems to be playing right into their hands. Right, right. And so, you know, our brief, that's right, uh, doctor, our brief talks about some of the history in this. Um, and we had some uh, wonderful lawyers working on this. But in 2016, one of the things FDA said is that, you know, they allowed uh, mifepristone uh, to be uh, administered, uh, you know, at home uh, and prevented non-physicians to become uh, certified prescribers of the drug. Uh, fast forward to this year, the big thing is now FDA is permitting mifepristone to be shipped by pharmacists, which we, you know, I believe independently that that's unlawful, that that, that violates federal law uh, as well. But in a rush to what we're seeing, particularly post-Dobbs, rush to massively expand abortion coverage, uh, abortion availability, access to abortion, there is a complete and total disregard of federal law in many circumstances by the federal government. And furthermore, there's a disregard for the needs, the health, the safety, the dignity of pregnant mothers, of young women, of girls uh, in many circumstances. Uh, in, in an effort to provide, to massively expand abortion, they're running over the health and safety of millions of women and not telling the truth about this drug, not even complying with what federal law requires. So, again, there's no place, in my opinion, for abortion in a civil society that is just and that's humane. Uh, it, it's not health care. But even under the standards that Congresses have required the FDA to maintain under federal law to protect the health and safety of Americans, uh, the FDA and some of the healthcare industry has failed women on this drug. Uh, and it is a tragedy. It's a public health nightmare. Uh, and that's what this litigation's about. That's what our amicus brief is about. It's really, it's really something hard to even contemplate that it's so that the FDA wants these drugs to be so easily available, so easily shipped across state lines, so easily given to young girls, maybe by their pimps, right? Who are giving them a dose of this every month. I mean, why not? If you keep you keep your, your stable of girls nice and available. Um, right. So you just don't know when there's not, you know, when there's not an in-person contact with a medical profile, you know, with a, you know, I, I someone that is prescribing abortion, uh, in my opinion, they're not a true medical uh, professional because it's not medicine. But when you don't have someone that has some level of, of medical training and, and some ability to have some care and concern for a pregnant mom, a young woman, you know, who's not even able to check up on, on the girl or on the pregnant mother and to see what the conditions are to ensure that there's no coercion, to ensure that there's no nefarious activity, again, we're failing um, we're failing that pregnant mother, we're failing that teenage girl, we're, we're failing that young woman. Louis, you, you make a very, I, I like what you, what you were talking about, about, informed consent. So let's go back to informed consent. Um, in medical um, practice and medical school, they teach us very, very, uh, very strongly about informed consent because it's, it's one of those rock basis of, of good medical practice, right? You can't, the patient has to understand the risks and benefits of everything that a doctor or a nurse is offering them. Here, here is what you we can do for you, but you need to understand what can go well and what can go wrong. And and unless you're able to understand that and you have that long list of possibilities and you can grasp that, then that patient is not uh, properly consented. So right. where does this, uh, where does the FDA fail in the informed consent with, with mifepristone? Right. Um, generally, and we saw, we've seen this in, in other s scenarios, but Generally, if I'm going to, as a as a person, as a consumer, say that I am going to receive some type of medical intervention, uh, including some type of drug, I should know all of the complications uh, that can happen uh, to me. I, I should really understand 
what I'm getting myself into mm-hmm. at a very basic level. And um, because of the difference between the clinical trials under which uh, this drug was approved, uh, certain conditions for the health and safety of the uh, pregnant mother uh, that were available in the FDA-approved uh, clinical trial that have been dispensed with. They've gotten rid of some of these safeguards uh, in the way that these drugs are currently being prescribed. There's just no availability. There's no ability for patients currently to, for pregnant mothers, for women, to really truly consent, to really understand what they are getting themselves into by taking this drug. That's a very basic uh, argument that we're making, and I don't even think it's a close call at this point. And and the way that the FDA has tried to get around this is to say, well, the the pharmacist who dispenses this drug has to be able to explain uh, these things, right? I think that's part of the regulations. They have to be well-informed and be able to explain. Right. Now, I've been to many pharmacies, and I have a, a whole bunch of children, and I've, I've spent a lot of time standing in pharmacy lines and picking up drugs. They're based uh, in a pharmacy, what you get is a, is a pill dispensing machine, right? You, you show up and the clerk says, oh, here's your here's your uh, your prescription, you know, s- swipe your card. I don't see CVS and Walgreens and the other big pharmacy chains suddenly changing the way they do things and having right. an informed consent booth when a 13-year-old comes up with her uh, prescription that she received online from right. someone in Canada. That's right. Who may or may not be a a practicing doctor or nurse or anything like that. That's right. For decades, we have had a a civil society healthcare industry in which we have said, if if the FDA approves uh, whatever the drug may be, it is safe for you to use American public. And federal law actually requires the FDA to engage in certain studies and research and trials to ensure that those drugs that they approve are safe for the American public to use. That's not happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a violation of federal law, and it's a violation of the undergirding principle of healthcare in which we say uh, a medical professional must do no harm to the patient. So again, I'm pro-life. I don't believe abortion is ever uh, uh, a justified event. It is not healthcare. But uh, even for what we have under federal law, which, you know, which, you know, we don't have a federal law that bans abortion. So even if you say, well, even for those who say wrongly, I firmly am convicted that a chemical abortion uh, that, you know, is permissible in some circumstances, which I completely disagree with, even under that line of thinking, there's a complete and zero lack of care and concern for uh, the patient, for the pregnant mm-hmm. mother. Uh, in this situation. Again, it's not healthcare, but even if you believe that it's healthcare, you're dispensing with basic safety protocols that are used in almost every other circumstance. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah. Even if you enter into that headspace, which is so uh, contrary to traditional right. Western medicine, which is Hippocratic. Let's talk about that. Um, Hippocratic medicine is the idea that Western medicine has for thousands of years now been based on these principles, one of which is first do no harm. Um, and that principle is violated in the in, in every abortion, right? Because right. Uh, every doctor, anybody who studied embryology, anybody with half a brain knows that a, an abortion ends the life of one of the people in that room um, who is, a patient just as much as the mother is a patient in in the medical in a medical professional environment this has we've known this forever but and we practice that way even though there's always been practitioners who were willing to to kill children right uh, through abortion through all the history of, of of mankind and and this is why the hippocratic oath which doctors have taken for so long says I won't um, I won't induce an abortion even if I'm asked to by the mother so we've been against that as a society understanding that for medicine to work uh, for everyone it has to first do no harm so there you can't have some doctors who are assassins right you can't say oh I'm a doctor and part of I help people and part of the time I kill them so that's just not you can't have a working health system like that where that inspires trust in people that's so right. when where did where did Western medicine go wrong? When did it go wrong, and how far wrong have we gotten from that beautiful ideal of Hippocratic medicine? Right. No, I think that's a I think think that's a great question. Um, I I talk very often about a uh, very important New England Journal of Medicine article 
by Dr. Leo Alexander, who was a consultant to the U.S. Army uh, in their uh, participation in the Crimes Tribunal at Nuremberg. And what he saw uh, in his time when he was in Europe and studying what happened and and his warning in 1946 in this article uh, in the journal uh, to American medicine was he saw a slight but increasing focus away from the obligation to love one's neighbor and to care for the sick and the suffering, no matter the ability to rehabilitate uh, the patient, but simply to care for them and their suffering. Uh, and a move away from um, that golden rule of love thy neighbor as thyself and a move towards treating patients if they can be uh, productive. Um, that's part of a piece of what I see as a, a movement away from the dignity of the human person and, and the center of healthcare being the patient and a move towards the center of healthcare uh, being the profit motive. The profit, and yes. Particularly in the abortion industry. Uh, the, the primary motive of, of too much of healthcare, but particularly in the abortion industry, the primary motive uh, is not to uh, support and love and care for um, a pregnant mother uh, in abortion, including these chemical abortions. The primary motive is profit. Uh, and we see the unveiling of that awful, ghastly truth in the fact that the FDA, along with the abortion lobby, has shredded normal health and safety protocols uh, that would be applied here towards women uh, for the you know unholy false idol of abortion. Everything can be dispensed. All safety protocols can be dispensed if it means that we can profit off of women seeking to get chemical or surgical abortions. We're seeing that across the board. It's an absolute tragedy. Uh, Louis, I wonder if you uh, agree with me that another, th another, an a new development, a next development in this kind of um, seeing medicine as simply a profit-making enterprise is a gender gender ideology and the way that it's come after the children, um, oh, which is one, just 1, just yeah. a huge. Uh, I think something like one point nine billion dollar business, or right. I've That's seen right. I've seen numbers that just are staggering. Um, that there's just like this big machine that needs to be fed uh, disturbed people. And some of these children, some of these are children that are being fed into the machine in order to generate tremendous profits for the people involved, you know, the doctors and the nurses and the, and the therapists and, and all the people running these hospitals and, and, and clinics, but also for hedge funds and investors. Right. Who, it's a tragedy. It's a huge tragedy, and and I think we lost, and I, I'm sure you agree with me, we lost the scent when we lost the idea that medicine first does no harm, right? Right. That's, that's right. And that's what, I mean, I think we've talked a lot about about the, the, the tragedies that are going on, the ways that were aspects of our American healthcare system that are failing pregnant mothers and women, that are failing unborn children, that are failing, you know, particularly adolescents and teens that are... Uh, struggling with gender confusion or gender dysphoria, and, and we need to love them and care for them and give them uh, true medicine, true healing uh, and restoration, mm -hmm. uh, and not, not these transgender procedures that are doing great unethical harm. So we don't we need to stop those things. At the same time, uh, I think that on the positive side, we're seeing an increasing awareness uh, in the American public by policymakers, by people of faith across the spectrum, uh, of a need to protect. Uh, the medical right of conscience, the right of medical conscience, and religious freedom in healthcare that protect the dignity of the patient uh, from conception to natural, uh, particularly patients that are vulnerable, particularly patients that uh, are struggling, particularly patients that might be uh, in crisis and, and on the brink. Mm -hmm. And so that's what that's what we need is a restoration of human dignity in healthcare, including very much the medical right of conscience and religious freedom that protect. That, that upholds the principle of do no harm in healthcare. Louis, we only have a couple minutes left, but I think this is a good point to ask you about Christ Medicus and your organization and, and how you are seeing your mission in, in this great battle for medicine. Yeah, I, our mission at its core is for people to know that in their healthcare, through the way that they are cared for, that they are 
loved by God, that they have dignity, that they are uh, created by the Lord, and that the Lord, uh, in His love for them, in even in their health care, uh, is calling them to be His sons and daughters. And so that's that's what we see as health care uh, as a wonderful way to care for the sick and the suffering, uh, but even more so to restore uh, their dignity uh, and so that they can live as the created beings, human beings that they were made uh, to be. And particularly at Christ Medicus, we want people to know uh, as patients, as consumers of healthcare, uh, that God knows them, that God loves them, uh, that God is caring for them, uh, and God wants to heal and restore them, body, mind, and soul. We're doing that in three ways, Uh, doctor. The first way is that we work to educate uh, and build for the civil rights of life, uh, medical conscience, and religious freedom in healthcare. Uh, the second way is that we are ad- advancing and now building uh, Christ-centered uh, Catholic healthcare uh, uh, clinics, uh, particularly that uh, care for the patient uh, in, in their whole person, body, mind, and soul. Uh, and the third thing is we have a, a health solution, a Catholic health solution called Curo. It's Latin to heal, to care for. Uh, that's used by uh, individuals and families in over 40 states uh, throughout the country. Uh, we like to say that we're small but mighty, uh, and we're really excited about the work that we're doing. Well, where can our listeners learn more about Christ Medicus and all the wonderful things you're, you, that you have in process? Sure. Thanks so much. Yeah, you can go to cmfcuro.org, uh, cmfcuro.org, uh, or christmedicus.org. Well, thank you, Louis, uh, for all your work, and uh, especially today, and, and your work against uh, the FDA's abandonment of, of women. They abandoned babies long ago, but the abandonment of of women, of mothers who are pregnant, um, and their safety. So thank you, Louis, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your great work. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We welcome Peter and Deborah Herbeck onto the show to discuss lessons from the School of Love, Cultivating a Christ-Centered Marriage. Welcome to the show, Peter and Debbie. Thank you. Well, thank you for taking the time to share your expertise with us, um, the expertise of a happily married couple for many years and also one a couple that has uh, co-written a book called Lessons from the School of Love, Cultivating a Christ-Centered Marriage. It's a, it's a really interesting topic because it's one that maybe many young people would find almost incomprehensible, right? When, when people are young and in love, they think that the perfect marriage is one centered on each other. But you're proposing a completely different focus in a, in a happy and healthy marriage. Peter, tell us, uh, tell us about that focus and how, how you think that it is the basis of a successful lifelong union. Yeah, well, the, I think the, the, the title is, uh, represents something that Debbie and I really have expresses what our journey has been. And to go back to when our oldest daughter, our oldest child, Sarah, was married, a friend of ours, a priest, was presiding at the wedding. And he was reading 1 Corinthians 13, one of the passages that was used in the wedding, you know, love is patient, love is kind. And then it says, love never fails. And he he looked up at everybody in the church and he goes, this is interesting because love often fails. Mm-hmm. You know, and he got everybody's attention, you know, and he, and he said that he pointed out that it's the love of Christ and Christ's presence in the marriage that gives us confidence that we can live a different way of life. And then he turned to Sarah and Rick uh, who were there and he said, you know, we, we all rejoice that. Uh, you know, the love you have for each other, but I want to let you know, you don't yet know how to love uh, the way Christ is going to teach you. Now you're entering the school of love, which is marriage. That's beautiful. Yeah, this is where you're going to learn now. Um, And and, uh, everybody in the church totally understood. You know, it was like, yeah, this is our experience, you know, and it's so wonderful. This is God's plan. So anyway, that's fundamentally what we're trying to communicate here in the book. And yet, um, going back to its incomprehensibility in a sense, um, and, and, and your young daughter and her new husband didn't really understand that. Is, is it possible to understand it before you live it, do you think, Debbie? 
No, absolutely not. And I think, you know, you're you're moving into an ideal, you know, and what you hope and think life will be like with this other person and probably an idealized um, view of the other person as well. And it isn't until you begin to live together and, um, you know, to rub up against each other in a way that's like sandpaper that God begins to smooth out those edges and you realize, wow, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's the best thing I've ever done. But it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And we need help besides just one another um, to really do this and to do it well um, and to do it deeply and to do it um, for the rest of our lives. So I think that's where obviously Christ comes in. He's the he's the third person in that marriage who really helps us live it. Peter, Debbie mentioned living together and how that physical closeness is what starts um, that path towards a real marriage with Christ at its center. But many couples these days live together for a long time before they get married. What's the difference? Christian marriage obviously is, it's a covenant. And that is to say, I I make a public promise from my heart that, you know, uh, in good times and in bad, sickness and in health, I'm in. I'm all in. And I can make, from a Christian point of view, I can make this commitment. Um, I'm going to do, I'm, most people at, at the wedding itself are like, yeah, I can do this because all the emotion and the, and, the, and the love and the infatuation and everything that's present. But we can say it, as I said earlier, because of the supernatural grace that we can receive to learn how to love like God loves and like Jesus loves. And he wants to make, okay, so that's that. But people, young people live together. They don't make that kind of commitment. Mm-hmm. And it's it's short of a commitment of the whole person. And then they get into tr- into difficult situations of having, you know, a bodily unity, you know, uh, they're often sleeping together and the like. And they're they're saying two different things. They're saying I'm all in, but I'm not all in, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I'm all in as long as I feel like I'm all in, you know, and and it's not a promise. It's not a covenant. It's not based on the commitment of Christ at the center of this. And we're leaning on him. We're relying on him. And our confidence and security in making that kind of commitment really ultimately rests in him. There's a lot of momentum in us and a lot of heartfelt you know, emotion and intensity. But fundamentally, it's made under his lordship and his grace that allows us to make a lifelong commitment to it. So, My, my very sad experience um, has been with many people that I've known, people whose children have grown up with my children, is that um, marriages that you know start off very romantically? Even marriages that start off in in church in a in a in a, in a real Catholic wedding, a Christian marriage. Once the children the children become after the romance passes, the children become sort of the glue that 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 beautiful glue that holds the marriage together. Because both of the both the mother and the father are very interested in the well being of the children as they should be, and they have this beautiful common project. But once the children get to be a certain age, that Obviously, the children don't need them like they used to, and the couple drifts apart. Is is that centeredness on Christ uh, similar to a centeredness on children, but one that endures, Debbie, do you think? Um, I guess there's, you could, you know, kind of, it's a parallel there, but I think it's, it's, it's more than just a focus. It's, mm-hmm. It really is like the source of our strength, our power, our unity. So it's, it's not so much like we have a common mission and we both love Jesus, which is true, but he actually is the source that enables us to endure through all those ups and downs, through those highs and lows, through those times and, and phases in our life. And I know this as a mom, you know, when the kids go off to, to college or even begin to get married, how you're, you know, you shift your 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 gaze and your, your energy and all that. But, um, it, you know, Christ is the one that says you you've made this covenant promise to be together for your whole life. And um, that's going to keep you together and enable you to be together and enable you to turn to the Lord when your kids are gone and say, okay, together now, God, what do you have for us as a couple? What do you have for us to do now that we've finished this chapter of our life? For us, it's we are in ministry together, obviously, but our grandchildren are a huge part of our life. And how do we support our grown-up children in raising this next generation? And how do we pass on this legacy of faith and love to our grandchildren. So our our work isn't done yet um, in that regard in our family. Um, so I think Christ has to be the the center of all of that. I'm glad you I mentioned. I think one of the things we mm-hmm. I think one of the things we ex- we try to explain in the book is that um, our our perspective in coming in was to say 
you know, Debbie was already a very committed follower of Jesus. She's a, you know, uh, you know, a convert to Catholicism. Debbie's Jewish from her background, very committed to the Lord and already knows him, loves him, is trying to, to live as a disciple. And I was kind of, I was in the same boat. And so we come together. Now we say we, we've both learned some things about how to follow Jesus and, you know, to do what pleases him with all our heart. That's our fundamental desire. How do we do that together? And now the adventure is, the great adventure is we're going to we want to establish a culture, a family culture, a pattern of life that's centered on the Lord. We, the, you know, the church calls it domestic church. And so in the context of the domestic church, we're, we're raising our children. That's a centerpiece, one of the central realities of it. But what we're doing is trying to draw our children into the, the life we share in the Lord together. Debbie and I, and to help bring them in and knowing that we want to we want to help them come to enter the conversation, enter the adventure, enter a life in the Lord. And so um, and then that continues. I think it takes on a different shape, as Debbie's saying, as they get older, as they leave, as they start raising their kids. But now they start extending what they received at home, you know, and, and that's what's happening with our kids. You know, all of it's imperfectly, including with Debbie and I. But the Lord's faithful. And he really helped us do that to build a family culture. That's so together. fascinating that you're a convert, Debbie. Are you also a convert, Peter? No, no. Born baptized as a baby, mm -hmm. Catholic, and uh, been at it, um, you know, some bumpy roads in my early life. But <laughs> eventually, eventually woke up and the Lord has been good to me. So he's helped me. Well, I can I can so sympathize because in my in my own marriage, my husband and I've been married thirty years almost. Let me not get ahead of myself. And he was I was a I'm a cradle Catholic, and he's a convert from Judaism. And no way! Yes. Oh my gosh! And and it's been so. I, I'm sure that our experiences have been so similar. It's been so beautiful watching mm -hmm. watching my husband um, put Christ in the center of his life, and then feeling that um, that oneness with him and that unity that couldn't exist before that. And and mm -hmm. also my putting Christ in the center of our marriage was imperfect. I couldn't do it by myself. My husband had to do mm -hmm. it too. It was a pro it, it something we had to do together. We had to turn mm -hmm. not to not me to Christ and him to me, but both of us to Christ, if, if that makes sense to you, Debbie. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think we probably have some very similar um, experiences of that. And, and Peter and I also were excited to talk about an adventure, like how do we bring, you know, my Jewish background and upbringing and culture and heritage into our family life with our Catholicism and how do we raise our children with a unique understanding of who they are as um, Jewish Catholics, you know, or, or Hebrew Catholics. So um, it's been a beautiful thing to be able to do. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I completely understand that. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have that strain in, in one's Christian life of having that connection to to salvation history from the very beginning, right? Mm -hmm. From the first time mm -hmm. that God sort of meddles <laughs> with his creation and says, I'm going to save you and I'm going to bring you all along to where you should be. And But this starts many thousands of years ago. And Amen, uh, as a Jew, as, I, as you say, a Hebrew Christian family, um, there's so many beautiful lines to draw for, for our children. I like what mm -hmm. you say about grandchildren. Uh, I, in my own experience, um, my with my parents and my in-laws their 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 uh, impact and their the importance in my children's lives of their grandparents is tremendous and and yeah. i think maybe sometimes we discount that phase of our lives i'm hoping to enter that phase in the year or two so <laughs> my children are married so i'm really interested in yeah. that phase how peter tell us how you can help how we can help our young married um the young married people in our lives to to have a christ-centered yeah. marriage yeah well, well, just first, I have to say when when that it, the adventure expands to grandchildren, uh, Debbie and I, I think we experience our grandchildren as being absolutely there, you know, good therapy. I mean, absolute joy mm -hmm, you know, being with them. And Debbie particularly has a real gift from for just providing support and care. And it's been a, a good part of our life. And one of the reasons it works uh, is also because our children have embraced continuing the faith and living it themselves. And then mm -hmm. we continue to share Jesus in a wider circle and um, and help bring the great, we all work together to help bring the grandkids into it at the same time. It just, it's just a pattern of life and living life together, a kind of rhythm of life uh, that so far, you know, it's just been a, a tremendous blessing. And um, 
to your question was how do we how do we teach young couples to put Jesus at the center of their life? Mm-hmm. Is, that what, yes. is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. You know, I'd say I say you know it really begins with each each person asking where is my where am I in relationship to Jesus how, in the life of the church? Have I have I really made a commitment myself to become a disciple? And is is have I put him first? You know, my mm-hmm. first commandment: seek God. You know, first. That's the first and the greatest thing is to have your heart related to God. So I think, honestly, it's always going to be imperfect. But I mean, is that basic commitment there? And then your pursuit and then your spouse's pursuit allows you to move forward together and be able to pray together, to share your life together in Christ, to be able to to find others who are doing the same thing, other, you know, other friends who are also on that same journey. And uh, I remember St. John Paul II said, you know, when, when, when a person uh, really makes a commitment to Christ and responding to the Lord in faith, it is an intention. He said, from the beginning, when it's healthy, it's an intention to radically surrender your life to him. And so that radical intention, it's very exciting when two people can do that imperfectly. Um, and then when it make, when life comes, you know, right there in the first year, when battles begin and challenges happen, you can both say, you know, I know how I'd like to respond right now in my flesh. You know, I'd like how I'd like to respond to you. We can slow down and say, okay, what does love demand right now? What does the Lord want us to do? Because um, we want to make it our aim to please him. That's a very, very helpful thing that we're committed to each of us embracing. And we fall short. We help each other recognize that. And, and also that focus on what Christ wants, um, what God wants is very mercy-centered, isn't it? And that helps us in forgiving because there's so much to forgive in a marriage on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's the saving grace, really, for any relationship, but in particular for a relationship, is that we can extend God's mercy to the other um, and to ourselves when we fail, and we will fail. There's always a reason to come back to one another because Christ has made that you know, way for us um, in forgiving us. And so mercy is a huge part of a relationship. And I think too, you know, when you start out of marriage in a certain sense, you know, you're looking to the other person to be everything for you. And you you realize pretty quickly that person doesn't have the capacity, nor do you, mm-hmm. to be everything. And so if you can't find it in the most important person in your life, you have to have a place to, to go, which is Christ himself, who who gives us what we need, everything we need to love well and to be to be loved well. I think one of the things you, you notice in the current culture and why it's harder for young people as they see older people walking away from their commitments is, is the uh, people end up, I think, turning away from the fundamental grace that God wants to give. Because right when it gets hard, right when it gets difficult and it's kind of sobering, that's exactly when the Lord wants to help us understand his path to love and ultimate fulfillment, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is, he said, I'm among you as one who serves. Mm-hmm. I want to teach you to walk in humility. I want to teach you to walk in meekness. I want to teach you what it means to be gentle and humble of heart, uh, to learn how to wash your spouse's feet. I want to teach you how to forgive. And that stuff is does not come naturally to us, you know, no. and and not only is it like a duty or something I have to do, but as I follow him, we come to see as you get further down the road and these these transformation starts happening in you and you actually do learn how to love you. It's like, wow, this is really great. This is re- I didn't know, you know, I didn't know mm-hmm. what I didn't know. And uh, I thought happiness was going to be tied to, you know, hype and, you know, high intense emotion and high intense passion and, you know, everything working well every day. But saying, no, 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 it's the path the Lord said is the one as I, I described. And that's where you find happiness. That's where he promises joy. Well, this has been absolutely beautiful, Peter and Debbie. And I, I congratulate you that you've come to so much knowledge through your beautiful marriage and your connection with Christ and putting him in the center and that you've written this, this book. It's called, for our listeners, Lessons from the School of Love, Cultivating a Christ-Centered Marriage. How can our listeners buy your book? Well, they can go to renewalministries.net. Well, thank you. Yep. God bless. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry. It's a joy to join you again and ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in the Gospel this Sunday. 
as we with the apostles Peter, James, and John behold Jesus transfigured among us. Every year, 10 days into Lent, the church has its journey with Jesus to the top of an exceedingly high mountain. It does so for the same reason why God the Father conceded to Peter, James, and John the experience of the transfiguration in the first place. To give them a foretaste of Jesus Christ's glory. To sustain them when they would see Jesus transfigured in blood, pain, and suffering on Good Friday. We see this connection between Mount Tabor and Mount Calvary, between the glory of the transfiguration and the glorification of Christ in the throne of the cross. And what the subject matter, the conversation between Jesus and the two great heroes of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, was. Moses and Elijah are both precursors of Lent. Elijah had lived a Lent of 40 days crossing the desert to the mountain of God Horeb as he was hunted by King Ahab. Moses had spent 40 days in prayer at the top of Mount Sinai. They came specifically to speak with Jesus, not about the glory that was to come, not about heaven, but about the culmination of the Lenten season, Jesus' suffering, cross, and death. St. Luke tells us that they spoke about the exodus Jesus was to accomplish in Jerusalem when he would lead us, just like Moses led the Israelites from slavery through water in the desert to the promised land. Only this time the slavery is not Pharaoh, but sin. The water is not the Red Sea, but baptism. The desert is not in the Middle East, but in our Lenten experience. And the promised land is not flowing with milk and honey, but the living water that wells up to eternal life. There are three essential lessons from the Transfiguration that are meant to influence the way we live Lent in life. The first is the exertion, the effort that a Holy Lent entails. Jesus leads Peter, James, and John on a rough climb. Christian tradition normally associates the mountain where Jesus was transfigured as Mount Tabor, which towers over Galilee and the plains of Megiddo, it takes over 10 minutes to climb and vans up narrow zigzagging paths. It takes vigorous climbers at least a couple hours to ascend on foot. The apostles needed to leave civilization in their comfort zones behind and hike with Jesus, sweating, probably gasping a little for ear, to pray with Jesus and then see him revealed. Lesson for us is that the Lord is likewise asking us to make an exertion this Lent. Lent is fundamentally dynamic. We're called to be on the move. And the pilgrimage he seeks to have us make with him isn't in some comfy vehicle. He's asking us to climb, to sweat, to work. Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, if we've set proper resolutions, all require effort, sacrifice, and perseverance. Repenting and believing the gospel require grit. That leads us to the second lesson, which is the help God gives us to make this exertion. The Transfiguration, Saints Peter, James, and John saw something extraordinary at the end of their spiritual and physical climb. Jesus was transfigured. He and all his clothes were radiant. He was speaking with Moses and Elijah, the greatest figures in Jewish history. The cloud, a sign of God's presence, came down upon them. God the Father spoke. All of these theophanies were so powerful, the apostles didn't know what to say. They wanted to prolong the experience, offering to make tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. These experiences all happened to strengthen them in faith as they would descend the Mount of Transfiguration to ascend Mount Calvary with Jesus. When they would see Jesus transfigured in blood, they would be able to remember his divinity. The church helps us to capture this reason for the Transfiguration in the Eucharistic preface for Sunday's Mass, in which the priest prays, For after Jesus had told his disciples of his coming death on the holy mountain, he manifested to them his glory to show, even by the testimony of the law and the prophets, that the passion leads to the glory of the resurrection. So it was to sustain their faith in trial. We know, however, that it didn't fully work. They fell asleep in the garden. They fled in Gethsemane. Only John was present at the foot of the cross. But while for the most part it failed them in the moment, it's meant to sustain us in Lent and life. The vision of Jesus' glory is what has sustained the faith of the martyrs in making the sacrifice of themselves for God because they knew that once they breathed their last, they would see Jesus transfigured. It's what sustains now the Christians in Ukraine, in northern Nigeria, and in all places where Christians are suffering. The vision of Jesus' glory and how he wants us to share in it is meant to give us hope to persevere in faith no matter what trials come our way. It's also what's meant to help us boldly make the sacrifices necessary in Lent to come into far greater union with the Lord. If anything's keeping us from Jesus, the vision of his glory is meant to inspire us to excise those things from our life, 
or to use Jesus' biblical image to cut off our hands or feet or pluck out our eyes if they're leading us to sin and away from God. The sacrifice of doing so is worth it. Whatever we have to give up makes sense compared to the glory of Jesus we await, the glory he wants to share with us. The final lesson is perhaps the most important. After all of the other aspects of Jesus' transfiguration, God the Father finally speaks. He talks only three times in the entire New Testament. At Jesus' baptism, when he pronounces Jesus' beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. At the Last Supper, when in response to Jesus' prayer to glorify his name, replies that he has glorified and will glorify it again and here. But what God the Father says at the top of the mountain is quite surprising. He thunders, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's a peculiar imperative. After all, what had Jesus been, what had Peter, James, and John been doing for the previous two years than listening to Jesus? They listened to him, call them from their boats to be fishers of men. They had heard him say all his parables, like the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the sower and the seed, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and so many others. They had listened to the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, and the great Eucharistic discourse in the Capernaum Synagogue. They listened to him teach them how to pray. They listened to him instruct them as they walked along the dusty streets of Palestine. They listened to him lambaste the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees and console widows, sinners, and so many others. They had basically spent the last two years constantly listening to Jesus. But God the Father noticed something that they themselves had grasped that they were selectively listening to Jesus, that they were particularly tone deaf to what Jesus had been saying about how he was going to be betrayed, suffer greatly in Jerusalem, be tortured, crucified, killed, and on the third day raised. They didn't want to hear it. When Good Friday came, most of them were not within earshot to hear Jesus' seven last words. What they were even less willing to hear was what Jesus said immediately afterward, that whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To be Jesus' disciple, to be able to follow him, they needed to say no to their earthly ambitions and be crucified with Jesus. God the Father, who could see their hearts, knew that they were ignoring what Jesus was saying about his transfiguration and suffering, and their transfiguration and suffering too. So that's why he said, listen to him. The same Father gives us the same loving command. On Sunday, we'll leave our homes to climb not the Mount of Transfiguration, but the altar of God. It's there at Mass that Lent and everything else in our faith finds its source and summit. The Lord wants us to make the exertion to leave our comfort zones and come, even to come each day during Lent if we can. It's at Mass that we see Jesus transfigured not in glory, but in humility. We build not a booth for him, but a tabernacle and a church so that we can come into his presence and allow him to transfigure us. It's at Mass that we listen to his word, the words of eternal life, and seek to become living commentaries of it. Each time we go to Mass, God gives us as a reward for our exertions, as a foretaste of forever, what he holds dearest, but was willing to sacrifice for our salvation. As we prepare to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, God the Father will say to us, This is my beloved Son. Do whatever he tells you. Take seriously his words throughout Lent, repent and believe, and follow him. Accompany him on the pilgrimage on which he wants to lead you, up not Mount Tabor, but the celestial Jerusalem, to my house, where I've built a booth not only for him, for Moses, for Elijah, but for you. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 